Amen. Well, if you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. We're, we're sort of reconnecting with a series through this old letter that's been carrying us all year long. We've taken a little bit of a break to celebrate Holy Week, to start, spend time thinking together about the kingship of Jesus and about the death of Jesus and about the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us and how we live today, how we see the world through resurrection eyes. And this morning we're reconnecting with the letter we had set aside for a couple of weeks. Ironically enough, we are reconnecting with this letter just as Paul, or just as the author of the letter has, is breaking off what he was talking about. In verse 11 of chapter 5, that's where we're going to pick up today, Paul's about to take a hard right-hand turn. He's been in the middle of this long conversation about Jesus as the priest, as the one who, who falls in the line of this mysterious figure called Melchizedek. And how in the line of Melchizedek, Jesus offers us what nobody else can. How even this obscure, strange-sounding figure that we know barely anything about matters for us and is life-changing in the implications that he has. That's what he wants to tell his readers. But in verse 11, he takes a hard right turn because what he realizes is that they're not ready to hear it. Something about them is not right. One of the things that I hear from folks most often, and, and, and actually one of the things that I say to my accountability partners most often, is one of, the, one of the constant struggles in the Christian life, I think, is just feeling that we're stuck. You know, you know what that feels like? You're just not growing at all. You don't know what to do to make so, any kind of progress in your pursuit of God. Sometimes it's just because you don't feel it. Sometimes it's because you're just distracted or or. Sometimes it's because you just don't know what to do. My guess is that that's where Paul, or where the author to Hebrews, where his readers were. They, they apparently weren't ready for the deep stuff that he wanted to unload on them. And maybe it was because they didn't believe it was true. Maybe it was because they thought what he was telling them wasn't for them, like it was for some elite class of Christians who were meant to study theology, but it wasn't for them. Maybe they thought that it just wasn't that important and they didn't care. I don't know, but I imagine they felt where we feel so often that we're just kind of stuck and we don't know how to get ahead. Here's the thing. The author, the author to the Hebrews is convinced that this stuff he wants to tell them about, as deep as it is, that, that life and death hang in the balance over these truths. These truths about Jesus are the difference between life and death. This author is convinced that what all of us are called to is a kind of spiritual maturity. I think what he's resisting is what we're often tempted to think, that there are like tears of Christians and, and some are, are supposed to be driving hard after more and more deeper, deeper understanding of God, but others can, can be content with a sort of lesser understanding, maybe just sort of a status quo. Like I tend to think about, I, I'm really deferential when it comes to other, to professionals in professions other than where I am. So I'm not likely to dispute something my doctor tells me I need, right? I'm okay to just sort of let him be the expert and, and do what he tells me to. Or, you know, I'm okay that I don't know how to change my own oil, you know, or, or, or diagnose some sort of problem in my own engine. That doesn't bother me. I take it to a mechanic and pay him because it's, I'd rather pay him the money than take the time to learn what he knows. 
I think sometimes we're tempted to see Christianity in the same way, as sort of this professional class of Christians who, who are responsible for driving hard after more and more knowledge of God, and then this lay class of Christians who are okay to just coast at the status quo. You know, I, give me what Jesus offers, and then, and then let me go. We've got lives to live, right? We're busy. We have things that are competing for our attention. I think that's where the, the readers of Hebrews were. They had sort of stopped driving after more knowledge of God. And what had happened, what he challenges them with in our passage this morning, is that they'd slipped into a kind of spiritual immaturity. They were stuck as babies in the faith. And they weren't getting the full benefit of what was theirs in Jesus. And what that meant was that they also weren't able to give that full benefit to other people. They were doing no one any good because they were stuck themselves. I say all this because I think that to this passage, this, this hard right turn from his deep talk about Jesus and Melchizedek and all this other stuff that we're going to get back to actually hits us where we are. We feel stuck half the time. We don't know what to do to get better. And, and half the time, we don't even care that we're stuck. We're apathetic. We lack drive in the things of God. That's exactly what this author is challenging in, in our passage this morning. I think what he, what he wants us to see is what it is that keeps us from maturity, sort of diagnosis of the problem. Here's what you substitute maturity for, what, what's, what sort of roadblocks or barriers to you growing in, as Christians. And then the second part of our passage, he talks about what it would look like for us to grow in maturity. If maturity is a, is a constant acquisition of knowledge of and love for God, And if that's the goal for us, what would keep us from that? And how could we move past whatever is is holding us back and grow as Christians? That's what I want us to look at this morning. First, if you found the passage, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read? This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to begin in verse 11 and read through chapter 6, verse 3. This is God's word. About this... And here he's talking about Melchizedek, Jesus as his high priest. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. He starts with the diagnosis, with as sharp a challenge as we've seen him give to those that he's writing to. Here's the problem. should be pretty easy to see. The problem is that they've become dull of hearing. They're sluggish. They aren't attentive. They aren't, they aren't clued in. They aren't looking for the word of God. 
And because they're not attentive, because they're not clued in and don't care to listen, they're no good to anybody. They should be teaching, right? But now, they're, not only are they not teachers, they keep having to relearn the same stuff over and over again because they've just let it lie. They, they haven't done anything with it. They're stuck on milk when they should be skilled in the word of righteousness, the word that is, that is about and that communicates what's good and right. They can't handle solid food. That's ultimately the problem. He's got some things that he thinks shape their lives that he wants to tell them, and he doesn't think they're ready to hear it because of the condition that they've slipped into, the kind of flabbiness of their muscles through disuse. That's the basic gist of the first paragraph, of his, his diagnosis of their problem. What we want to do, though, is really try to understand what it is that's caused this problem. Until we know what has caused the problem, we won't know what to do to fix it, right? It's simple. What is it, though, that, what, what is it under the surface that's caused them to slip into this apathy? I think there are a couple important clues in this passage that help us. I think you're going to find them, if, if you're like me, you're going to find them eerily and maybe a little bit uncomfortably familiar. Spiritual maturity, what keeps us from spiritual maturity, what causes spiritual immaturity is a problem of the senses. That's the big umbrella. It's a problem of the senses. And I don't mean a problem of physical senses, like the ability to see things with your eyes or hear things with your ears. I mean the pro- a problem of the spiritual, moral senses, the senses that help us to know what's important, to separate what's important from what isn't worth our attention and our time. The, the senses that help us to taste and see that the Lord is good. The senses that Paul is talking about in the passage I prayed through this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, where he prays that they would have the eyes of their heart enlightened so that they can know through, through these new eyes what it is that's waiting for them and worth their whole lives. That's the kind of senses that are lacking in someone who's spiritually immature. Specifically, I think those who are spiritually immature lack a sense of hearing, of listening to what's important, and they lack a sense of taste for what is good, desirable, beautiful, love-worthy. They lack a sense of hearing, and that is a sense of attention to just what matters versus what doesn't matter, and they lack a sense of of taste to know what's beautiful and good and, and worthy of their affections versus what isn't. Those are, the, those are the two things this passage clues us into. That's what causes spiritual immaturity. Let me, let me say more. The first challenge that he gives us is in verse 11, and that's where he hammers them for having poor senses of hearing. Again, it's not that they can't hear, literally. Their ears are fine. It's that they don't pay attention. They aren't listening for something that matters. They've lost the sense to hear what matters from what doesn't. We've been seeing him all along in this letter build towards this moment. All along, he's been giving them sort of gentle encouragements. He'll tell them something about Jesus, something deep and true and beautiful about Christ. And then he'll, he'll tell them to do something with that. And the kinds of things he's told them to do are things like consider him, pay attention to him. Chapter 2, verse 1. Don't be hardened to him like Israel was. Chapter 3, verse 8. Take care. I mean, almost like him shaking them, trying to wake them up. Take care. Pay attention. This matters. Verse 12 of chapter 3. Be diligent, he tells them. Chapter 4, verse 11. And now, in chapter 5, verse 11, we finally understand why he's been telling them these things all along. The problem is they're dull of hearing. That's what verse 11 says. They're dull of hearing. 
They're susceptible to the kinds of things he's been warning them against because they've lost an intense desire to hear the things of God. That word dull of hearing, it's the same thing that comes up later in chapter 6. It's just and it's translated sluggish, just sort of laziness with regard to hearing the things of God. Just an apathy. They don't care. You can see how that's connected, not to a physical problem of hearing, but to a condition of their hearts where they just don't care. They're not listening. They should be teachers, but they keep having to relearn and forgetting and then relearn and forget the same basic things because they just don't care. Again, this sense of hearing, of listening and paying attention, it's directly related to our sense of what's important. Their problem is that they have an immature sense of what they should be listening for. I think that's what's get, what they're getting at in this dull of hearing phrase. So my son is <clears throat> a year and a half, roughly. I think that's right. And he has a very immature sense of hearing. His ears work fine, but he doesn't pay attention. He doesn't listen to things that matter versus things that don't. So if he goes charging off into the street in front of our house, which he does on a fairly regular basis, and I say, Walter, no, stop, come back, he doesn't even turn his head. I mean, he just keeps going. He's getting a little better. I'll give him a break. He's getting, he's getting better at that. But typically, he just keeps on going as if he doesn't even hear me. I know he hears me, right, physically. But in his heart, in his mind, in the, in the moral faculties that he has, he doesn't judge what he's hearing as important. He doesn't see it as something that affects his life. He doesn't see me as an authority who's for him and wants his good and who therefore is worthy of his attention. But after his nap on an afternoon, if I offer him a pack of fruit snacks, his whole countenance changes. I mean, he just comes alive and he he knows exactly where they are. He tears off into the kitchen. I say tears off. For for him, running now goes at exactly the same pace as walking. There's just more movement of the limbs. (laughs) He runs straight in there to where they are, and he knows. I mean, his whole body is engaged in, in trying to acquire these fruit snacks. He listens in a different way. And the problem is that he's immature, right? His immaturity is a factor of a defective sense, not a physical one, but a moral or spiritual sense for discerning what information does matter versus what information doesn't matter. That's what's a problem with these... Hebrews that this letter is written to. They don't care about what God says. Think about how often they've been told to listen and how often they've been told that God is speaking to them. Remember that beautiful way that the whole letter opens? Those of you who've been with us through this series, maybe you remember the the, the opening of the whole letter is, in former times, God spoke to his people through the prophets. But in these latter days, he has spoken by his son, his son who is word itself. This author wants them to hear something that, hang, something that affects their entire lives. Their lives are literally hanging in the balance. And they aren't listening because they've grown sluggish and dull and they're just babies. They are listening for fruit snacks and not for information that could save their lives. That's the problem. Now consider in another example, by contrast. Think about how you devour information that's related to a, to a decision you got to make that is really going to affect your life. Anybody shop for a house lately or a car or something like that? You, you know how it is. Like every day you go to your computer just hoping some new listing has popped up. And if it does pop up, 
Like you just devour every piece of information you can possibly get. You want to know how old it is and something about what's been renovated in it or ownership history or records. What's the neighborhood? What are the schools? You you're fixated on it, right? Because that's a decision that matters. It is going to affect your life one way or the other. And so you're locked in. There is no detail too small to be worthy of your attention when you're making some big purchase like that. But you don't, you don't show that kind of attention to a pack of gum that you're going to buy at the gas station, right? Because that, that doesn't affect your life. So you don't do a lot of research. I mean, maybe some of you are like reading the ingredients to make sure there's you know, not any sort of cancer-causing preservatives or whatever. But I mean, in general, you're not really paying a lot of attention to a pack of gum. Not, certainly nothing like what you would to a house or a car. But how many of us approach the Word of God like we approach information about a house that we want to buy or a car or whatever? I mean, does that sound like the way you go into God's Word? Just sort of always clicking refresh, looking for something new like you do on a, on a, looking for a house listing? No, that's not how. None of us are like that. And it's because our, our senses of what we should be listening to are defective. What we need is new ears. What we need is to be shaken, to wake up so that we're not dull of hearing anymore. We don't listen to God's word like we listen to information about a major life-shaping purchase because we don't see the information in God's word as important to us, and that's what holds us back from maturity. That's number one. There's another kind of sense, though. That's a sense of hearing, a moral sense of hearing, of being able to tell what the difference between something that matters and something that doesn't matter. Another sense that keeps us back from maturity is a sense of taste, a sense of, of being able to distinguish between things that are, are good, that are worthy of our love and affection, versus things that aren't. That comes through much less directly than this challenge to their sense of hearing, but still clearly. This is in verse 14. So, so verse 11, he starts in on them for their hearing and then describes the fallout from it. That because they don't really care to hear, because they're not really attentive and seeking after God's word, they become like babies. They can't teach anybody. They're just stuck. They're drinking milk. Then in verse 14, I think he gives us another insight into what's holding them back. Here, though, it's, it's an insight that comes to us by inference. It's not, it's not something he comes at us directly with. In verse 14, he describes what the mature person looks like. So by, you know, by logical inference, the immature person would lack the qualities that this mature person has. And the way he defines a mature person, somebody who's ready to have solid food, who's ready to hear about Melchizedek and not check out, right? That person is a person who has powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The mature person... Verse 14 says, is a person who has powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. Now, here's what I think that's getting at. Obviously, if, if, if that's what the mature person has, then, then the immature person is not ready for solid food because they don't have faculties that can tell the difference between good and evil. They don't have discernment. That's, what, that's what's holding them back. That's why they're not ready. What is this kind of faculty? I don't, I don't think that it's simply a sort of rational calculation, that they lack the ability to say, okay, now reasoning from point one and to point two, then therefore this thing must be good or not good. It's, it's not that. It's not their ability to think and break an issue down. 
It's th- this phrase is much more closely related to a faculty of taste, the ability to discern that is good and I love it, that is bad and I hate it. It's not just this sort of detached, rational calculation. It is, it is an affection of the heart, a sort of outflowing of what I want towards this, to this object that is worthy of my affection or not worthy of it. That's what the mature have. They're ready to hear about Melchizedek without checking out because they know that Jesus' connection to this random old historical figure in the Old Testament, it affects their lives. And they, they know that because their senses of taste of what's good and beautiful and true have been honed through practice to see it. Those who are immature don't know. They're not ready to hear that kind of stuff because they, they can't tell the difference between what's worthy of their affection and what isn't. If their problem overall is apathy, then you can see how apathy feeds on misplaced desire, having no taste for what's good. I'll give you a couple examples. Haven't you, haven't you experienced what it's like to to, to love someone or something so much that it drives you to want to know more and more about them. So a trivial example, I love Auburn football. You guys know that. Most of you know that. So the sad thing is I consume all kinds of information about them. So, you know, when February rolls around, National Signing Day, I can break down for you. This is, this is maybe a little too personal. <laughs> I can break down for you. You know, where t- roughly 20, 25 high school seniors are planning to sign to play college football. I can tell you, like, their basic height and weight, whether or not that estimated weight is accurate based on way they weighed in at different camps that were preparing them for signing day. I can tell you, like, what their position is and if they project to play the same position in college that they played in high school. And I know all this stuff about, like, 17-year-olds because of my deep affection for this program. I, I, it's not like... It's not like my knowing this is going to change it. I just want to know about it. I just want to know about it because I, I love it. And, and this information is directly related to what I love. And to know more and more is to love more and more. You know, the more we get these five-star recruits, the more my heart is fueled towards this team and its prospects. And much more seriously, you know how this works in a relationship if you've ever loved someone. And especially if you've ever experienced like the, er- the early stages of that love where you don't know as much about them yet, the love for that person drives you to want to uncover every rock because everything you find out about their character and their appearance and their personality, it just starts to multiply how much you, you love them. And a love that's not based in knowledge is an empty kind of love. Like what, what is it that you actually love? It's empty if you don't know more. So someone who has a taste for something wants more of it. They want to understand it better. They want to have their love for it fueled. I think what the author to Hebrews is saying here is that I've got something for you that is going to fuel your love for God. And if your tastes are well calibrated, if you have a good sense of what's good and what isn't, if you're mature, then when you hear the name Melchizedek and that Jesus is connected to him in the eternal order of priesthood, you're going to love it. You're going to worship God for it. But I can't tell you that. Because you don't have the mature sense of what's good versus what isn't. You haven't had a drive based in your love for for God and what he's done for you to know more and more and more about it. The immature don't have this love for the things of God and his promises. They don't taste them as delicious because their tastes are immature. And you use Walter again. 
Walter can eat goldfish by the truckload. He justifies a Costco membership just for his consumption of those little cheese crackers. But we have had the hardest time getting him to eat delicious, substantive, solid food. I, mean, he, he won't, we can, I can labor over some grilled chicken, for instance, that's marinated just perfectly and tender and juicy, delicious, and he won't touch it. He'll put it in his mouth, and his whole face changes. It just gets all screwed up, and it, it just falls right out of his mouth. He doesn't, he doesn't see that this is delicious in a way that goldfish crackers never could be. I mean, they're good. I'll give you that. They're good. I've, I've sampled a few from the snack trap. I'll admit it. But it's not grilled chicken, right, or steak. And he can't tell the difference because his tastes are mature. For a long time, he wouldn't eat fresh fruit. What he would eat was non-fresh fruit that had been sitting in a sugar syrup for probably months in one of those little packs of oranges, you know. He, he, he wouldn't eat fresh oranges, but he would eat these old syrupy ones because his tastes are immature. He doesn't know the difference between what's good and what isn't. We're prone to apathy, I think, in our Christian lives, to distraction, to disinterest in theology, to disinterest in solid food, because we haven't honed a taste for what's good yet. We can't discern through constant practice what is good versus what is evil in the way that the mature person can. Other things in our lives are more tasty to us. They seem more love-worthy to us. They're more satisfying to us than more and more knowledge of him who is light and life. Knowledge of the person and the character and the promises of God. So are you spiritually immature? That's the question. Maybe you haven't thought of it that way, but do you seem like you're stuck in your Christian life? Like things, the things of God, the things that you read in the Bible aren't growing more beautiful to you? Like your struggle against sin isn't more victorious? Like your joy isn't increasing? Like you have no drive whatsoever? No interest in moving forward? If you find yourself there, stuck there, the problem is not in God. The problem is not in the gospel. The problem is in you. In your immature taste buds. In your immature sense of perception, of hearing, of what is right versus what what matters, what is effective for you and what isn't. The problem is in us. But I think we can take even an even further step. The problem, it's not just that the problem is in us. I want us to be really clear on what sort of problem is in us. The problem is us and our tastes. But don't let yourself off the hook and convince yourself that the problem is in you by necessity. Like you can't get rid of it. What I mean is, if you're stuck in your Christian life, the problem isn't that you just lack the capacity to grow in the knowledge of God, to understand and enjoy reading <clears throat> and learning about him and, and, and building on the basics that you've already been taught. Again, to go back to my example earlier, this, this calling for us to grow in the knowledge of God to spiritual maturity is not like other professions where you have a certain professional class of knowledge that's necessary and other people who pay that professional class for the knowledge that they have, like a mechanic or a doctor or something like that. Please don't settle for a Christian life where you defer to the professionals 
for a deep and pervasive knowledge of God. Spiritual maturity, as he's calling for here, is the calling of everybody. And you do have the ability to, to, to grow in that area. Don't, don't let yourself off the hook by telling yourself that you just, you just can't grow in any more knowledge. Look, nobody is suggesting that you pass a doctoral exam on medieval atonement theories, right? That's not the goal. We're talking about a drive to know the one who is life and a love for the one who is beauty itself. And I guarantee you that however much you may think you are not cut out for studying the Bible and, and, and theology, for reading and growing in your knowledge of God, I guarantee you there is something in your life that you are passionate about, that you spend plenty of time knowing and learning about. Everybody's got something that they're devoted to, that they study by default and as a way of life. For you, that may be cars, it may be fitness, it may be sports, it could be cooking, it could be Pinterest, it could be other people's Facebook pages, it could be World of Warcraft video games. I guarantee you that there are people flunking out of high school, antisocial in their, in their demeanor, all over the country, who are, may seem like duds in the classroom, but who are experts on the worlds that are created on their computer screens. They know the mythologies and the cosmologies and the, the, the characters and the histories of these worlds. Everybody's got something that they're into, right? And that they spend time reading about and consuming. And chances are, whatever it is for you, the reason you spend so much time on it, the reason you know it inside and out, like I know Auburn football, is because you love it or because you think it matters. You think it's going to shape your life in some dramatic way. Now, you've got to learn how to see God like that. The calling to spiritual maturity, away from spiritual immaturity, is to learn to see God that way. To hunger to know more because your life hangs in the balance over what he says to you. To hunger to know more because when you taste him, he is good to you. Our problem is not in the intelligence. There are not sitting out among you this morning those who can increase in the knowledge of God and those who can't because they don't have what it takes. The problem is not intelligence. The problem is attention and affection. The problem is attention, hearing, and affection, loving, perceiving the difference between what's good and what isn't. It's in hearing and tasting. If you're stuck there, oh, please hear this. The beauty of the gospel is that you're not judged for it. That God has responded to your unwillingness to hear him and to see him as valuable and beautiful, not by checking out of his relationship with you, but by coming closer to you. The beauty of the gospel is that our response to, to him, our, our failure to hear, the whole history of failure to hear that is the history of Israel, led God not to swift judgment, though he would have been justified in doing that, but to sending his own son to communicate more clearly to them, to sort of shake them up and say, here he is. Here he is. Your life hangs in the balance over this word. This word is beauty itself. The message of the gospel is that God came to you because you wouldn't come to him and that he took on the punishment that you deserve for not coming to him and he bore it completely and he is now risen from the grave as a pledge of the fact that you have nothing more to fear. Now listen to him. Hear him. In his words are life. 
if what keeps us from growing in maturity is a defective sense set of a defective set of, of spiritual senses, a sense of hearing and taste, then how do we grow in maturity? How do we get past what's holding us back and actually start to grow? I think that's where the author turns at the beginning of chapter six. Most of the end of chapter five is about diagnosing a problem, and now he sets us, he calls us to something. I want to I want to try to first summarize what it is he calls us to, and then I want to give you some practical examples of how you can do it. So let me explain it first, and then and then some practical examples. How are we going to grow in maturity? How to grow in maturity? That's the second main thing discussed here. Therefore, the author writes in chapter 6, verse 1, Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And you're probably thinking, what is that all about? As normally, that's not. Those things that he's strung together in verses 1 and 2 are not what we normally go to when we think of the basics of the gospel. I wish we had more time to unpack what these, what these individual phrases mean. We're not going to spend that time this morning. These are, really, these really are the basics of the gospel as we would understand them. He just had a different set of words for using them. It's the basics of believing in Jesus and what he's done, of faith toward God, of repentance, or sort of turning away from everything else that you might that you might trade Jesus in for as if something else could do what you need. It's, it's things like baptism, of, the, of, a, of a confidence that in Jesus we will live again, that we don't have to fear the grave, of a, a confidence that if we don't trust in Jesus, there will be a judgment that we will face because of that. They're the basics of the gospel. And, and what we're told here, I think, is simply this. Build on the gospel. Do you want to, do you want to grow in maturity? You want to press on like he calls us to in verse 1 towards maturity? Here's how you do it. You build on the gospel. Now that is a little phrase with a ton of meaning. I'm going to unpack it just briefly and then give you some practical steps for it. I think we have to clarify what we mean by building on the gospel. Because I don't know about you, but when I first read that passage, it almost sounded like he's saying we should move on from the gospel. As if we, we don't want to just stay there, as if it's not necessary for our continued growth. I mean, the way my translation puts it is let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. As if, as if the gospel is just this entry into Christian living, but then we want to move on from it to get into the real stuff, the meat. And don't we always talk around here about how the gospel is everything for us? That, that, that our Christian lives, all of our growth is about unpacking the simple truth of the gospel and working it more into our lives, sort of kneading it in? I think it is. I, I, think, I think what verse 1 is getting at is not leaving behind the things of the gospel, but leaving them standing. That same verb that, that is here in my translation reads, let us leave the elementary doctrine. It's, it's, it's a word that often means leave standing, just let it remain. And here's what I think he's getting at. The problem with these immature Christians he's writing to is that, is that they weren't cultivating that foundation of the gospel. They, were, they weren't leaving it standing. They were letting it fall apart. They were neglecting it so that over time it began to crumble. They had to relearn it all over and over again. It makes sense out of what he says back in chapter 5 in verse 12 where he says, even though you should be teachers, you're having to constantly relearn all these basics over and over again. People are constantly having to teach you the things you should have learned Months ago, right? The problem is that they, 
They didn't leave their foundation standing. They didn't take care of it. They let it crumble. It's not that the gospel doesn't matter and we should move on from it. It's that we've got to cultivate it and then work into it and build up on it. Here's an example. Anybody ever learned a foreign language? How many of you guys have tried to learn a foreign language? A few of you. I'm guessing all of you had to do at least something of this in high school, so, so don't lie. And here's probably what happened in your high school, all right? You started your foreign language learning by learning the alphabet. Probably had some great catchy sing-song to learn it, right? Flashcards and stuff. You start with the alphabet. As you grow in your learning of this foreign language, you never leave the alphabet behind, right? It's not that you learn the alphabet, now you put that on the shelf, and you move on to deeper and deeper knowledge of this language. No, what you learn is how to use the alphabet. You're constantly putting it into new combinations to form words and to give those words different meanings and then to combine those words into sentences and to use them with grammatical correctness. You're, you're learning to use the alphabet that you started with. Now, here's what I'm guessing happened with most of you. It, it happened with me. You started learning that foreign language. You made some use of the alphabet, and then you set it on the shelf, right? You got the grade you needed to move on, and you put it aside. And then what happens? Then what happens? If you ever want to learn it again, you've got to start all over again. You've got to learn the basics again. You're back to the alphabet. You're not able to use the basics because you've lost that foundation, and it's crumbled on you. That's what they had done. They'd heard the gospel, but they hadn't cared about it. They were sort of status quo, just let it coast. We got this. We know enough. We'll leave the rest to the professionals. And over time, they had lost the basics themselves. So they were constantly having been retold about repentance and faith and washings of baptism and resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. And they, they couldn't ever put those basics to use to change their lives, to teach others about them. gospel alphabet is nothing you never move past. The promises of God to us are everything, but they're deep and they're wide and, the, and they are rich and they are a bottomless well and their value to us and their beauty to us grows as we give ourselves to them and learn to put them to use in our lives like you use the alphabet in language. That's the call. So how do we do it? This is where I want to end this morning. I'm going to give you three quick practical steps to take. If you feel like you're stuck in immaturity, if you're, if you're living in the sort of chapter 5 verses 11 through 14 world, and you want chapter 6 verse 1 to move on to maturity, here are some early steps you can take. Number one, constantly practice the gospel. Constantly practice the gospel. What is it that qualified the mature? that made them ready for solid food, that made them mature and not immature? What is it that gave them a capacity to taste what's good and to not like the taste of what's evil? Verse 14. It was the constant practice that they gave to their powers of discernment. Constant practice. They took the milk that they were given early, the basics of the gospel, and they practiced them. They worked it. It goes back to what he said all through this letter. He's calling us to rest in Jesus, to trust Jesus and not what we can do with our own hands. But he's also constantly calling us to work, to be diligent, to be, to be afraid, to take care, to consider, to pay attention. He's calling us to a constant practice of using, putting to use the truths about Jesus that we've been taught. 
put those gospel principles into use. There is nothing here that says it came easy for the mature. What comes easy is a crumbling foundation. That's what's easy. Status quo is easy. I heard one preacher use what I thought was a great analogy of this. I mean, any of you who have ever tried to grow something know that it's easy to grow weeds in your flower bed, right? You don't, have to, you don't have to work at that at all. You could just do what I do and sit in a recliner and drink sweet tea and watch baseball, and that'll happen. But if you want to grow plants that you mean to grow, flowers, vegetables, well, that takes work. You're constantly having to cultivate it. You need knowledge base. You need, you need experience. You need practice. And it's a constant battle, right? You can never set it aside and move on to something else. It's an everyday thing to try to grow something that matters. Similarly, no one, for example, this, this preacher went on, needs help learning how to complain. Complaining comes easy. Paul said in Philippians that he has learned to be content. In all circumstances. Get that? Not that he was content. Not that thankfully now that I know Jesus, contentment just comes so easily to me. He says, I have learned to be content. Now think back at Paul's life. Think about the beatings that he endured. Think about the shipwrecks and the snake bites and all the other sort of hard knocks that Paul had to go through. And now in Philippians, writing this letter from probably from prison, probably near the end of his life, he's saying to them, I have learned, finally, after all that I've been through, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in because the gospel is mine. All things are mine in Jesus, so nothing can be taken away from me. He learned how to put the gospel to use. He was trained like the mature to tell what's good which is Jesus, from what isn't, which is physical comfort and the freedom from prison and snake bites and shipwrecks and all that other stuff that we tend to think matters so much. Paul learned contentment, and we've got to learn it too. We've got to learn how to work the gospel's truths into our lives, and that prepares us for more and more knowledge. So if you can't see the significance of things like Melchizedek, for one, you're not alone. All right, It takes me a week of preparation just to figure out anything to say to you guys about Melchizedek. If you can't see the significance, if you don't have a taste for the Bible or books about God or growing in their knowledge of him, the problem isn't your intelligence. It's your attention and your affection, and that's a solvable problem for every single one of you. And what you need to do is constantly practice the gospel. Here's a tangible way. Read some books. Read basics. Even if you don't like it, even if, you, even if it's, it's not engaging to you at first, even if it's working you to death, and you just can't wait to be done for the day of whatever you'd set yourself to read, read good, basic gospel books. There's, there's a lot of them back here on the resource table. There's a book back there called Basic Christianity by John Stott. It's beautiful. Get it, buy it, take it if you want to, and read it. Read When I Don't Desire God by John Piper. It's written for people who are stuck in spiritual immaturity and can't seem to shake out of it. If you need some early steps to try to cultivate a desire for God, go get that book and read it. If prayer comes hard for you, go read, get, get a book called A Praying Life that's back here on the resource table by Paul Miller. Take it. It's yours. And read it, even if, you, even if it doesn't immediately connect with you. What you're going to need, first of all, is some discipline. Take a Bible reading plan and commit to it. And when you get behind, like two months behind, don't worry about it. Don't try to catch up. Just pick, on, pick up with the next day and just keep trudging ahead and keep faking it till you make it, basically. 
You're going to need to constantly practice before you have the taste buds of a mature Christian. It will work. It has worked for all mature Christians throughout all of time, and it'll work for you, but it's going to take effort and constant practice. Never get comfortable as if you know enough. Don't get content with your skill level in the gospel. Don't think you know enough for someone of your status in life and you can leave the rest to other people. You've got to have a drive for it or that foundation is going to crumble. Second, surround yourself with more mature Christians. Surround yourself with more mature Christians. It's not easy to practice the gospel, and that's why you're going to need some help. You're going to need accountability. You're going to need teaching. You're going to need modeling. You're going to need prayer support. I think our author assumes that you're going to need these things because earlier in chapter 5, he scolds them for not being mature because they're now not able to help anybody else. The idea is of Christians at all different levels of their spiritual maturity helping each other, reaching down to those who are not as far as long as you are and helping to pull them up. And what we are looking for here at our church is a culture where we see other people as targets, as resources for us in our walk with Christ, and as opportunities for us to invest in them. That's what we want, and that's what it's going to take if you're going to move on in spiritual maturity. And finally, you've got to pray. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 is for a new set of senses for those he's writing to. Without a new set of senses, you're not going to like what you read. And that new set of senses, even though there are things like constant practice that can help to hone them, ultimately, they come as a gift from God. So if you want to grow as a Christian, you have got to pray. You've got to ask as one who has nothing for everything that you need from God. And what we have promised to us in his word is that he loves to hear us, that he will give it to us. That's his promise. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for that rich well that is deep, that will never run dry. And forgive us for our apathy that keeps us from drinking from it. Help us to live anew. Help us to live as those who cannot survive without this water. Drive us to it. Satisfy us by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.